You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Lauren Sands Ramshaw joins Rob Osell to discuss reliable application development and the open source library, Temporal. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Web Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Osell. I'm an architect at this.labs. Today, we're very excited to sit down and talk about reliable application development with Lauren Sands Ramshaw. Lauren is a developer relations engineer at Temporal Technologies. Lauren, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Rob. Uh, happy to be here. Yeah, I, we're glad to have you here. So um, we are here to talk about sort of, I guess, reliability and ways to make our systems more reliable, more durable. Uh, more resilient in the in the face of failure. Can you kind of introduce maybe as we start out here, like why this is a thing that people should care about or like where these types of errors or problems of reliability sometimes can crop up? Sure. So I guess, I guess uh, uh, it, it definitely, um, so Temporal is one of the, um, uh, is an open source uh, software library that you can use to implement durable execution. Um, and there are a number of different options for durable execution, but the the category in general is something uh, most people don't know about. But it's uh, commonly used in in uh, really big tech companies, including uh, Netflix, uh, Stripe, uh, Datadog, uh, HashiCorp, and, and many more. And it it's not just um, increasing reliability; it also uh, is is sort of a, a step change improvement in simplifying backend development. Um, in system design, in distributed system patterns, and um, once you uh, start using it, you, you're able to to build things faster and more reliably. Um, yeah, interesting. I mean, like as I understand it, like one of the things that can come up, and it, like I feel like it's one of these things that builds over time, right? Like we know about transactions in a database, for example, and maybe some people do this idea that you can go and make a sequence of of writes that um, either all succeed or all will fail. Um, and like, it's not necessarily easy to do that with the backend, with just normal programming. And I think a lot of times as developers, we kind of do cross your fingers development where we just sort of go, I hope these things all work together, right? Until you get that one bug report where somebody happened to sign up right as the cluster got restarted or something and one thing happened, but another thing didn't happen. And suddenly when you start to try to unwind that, um, that can get really messy when you start trying to figure out how to detect when you got interrupted or how yeah. to recover or how to rewind things. I guess you want to go in a little bit more about kind of how messy this situation can get to if you're just trying to do this in a naive sense. Yeah, yeah. So so currently, like normal programming and, and system design is predicated on the fact that uh, the functions you run might, might die at any time. Um, you could uh, run out of memory or have, have an unhandled uh, exception thrown or you're uh, maybe, maybe you're restarting because you you need uh, to, to update the code so whatever the reason there's there's a chance that your, your function will uh, not not complete executing and so what what we trust is we don't trust the function we trust what we've written to disk we trust what we put in a database on a job queue in a message bus um, and so, so the, the fact that we have these like normal volatile functions has has large implications on on how we build software. And uh, what durable execution is is like a different primitive where 
your function is durable, which means that um, you can have a function running in production that, that I don't know, has 10 lines of code and it does the first five lines successfully. And then the, the process crashes uh, on line six. Um, durable execution, if, if you're using uh, one of these open source libraries uh, or, or hosted services, like there's a, uh, Amazon has a simple um, SWF, uh, AWS is an AWS service and durable functions is a, is a Azure um, service. Um, but if you're using one of these systems, then uh, what happens is when your process crashes in production, the process will the, the function will continue running from the same line of code uh, with all uh, state intact. So local variables, call stack, threads um, will all be in the same state, and the the first five lines won't be um, uh, redone, and you'll just continue executing. So you can you can rely on your functions completing running, um, which sort of might sound like it's not that important, like, okay, maybe like once in a blue moon, this is, this is, this is relevant to me. Um, uh, but like in those rare cases, like my support team can, can handle it and, and we'll manually fix it. Um, but it turns out that once you have this primitive of a durable function that is guaranteed to complete executing, uh, it opens up a lot of possibilities. Um, so there's some, some, some like basic, like how you program possibilities. And there are also some like architecture, how you, how you structure, um, uh, how, how you build systems. Uh, and I guess on, on this side, the like practical how you code, you can uh, like write a function that sleeps for a month and charges the user. So you can implement a, a monthly subscription in a single function with a, with a while loop and, and a sleep because uh, the sleep, like normally you can't do that because you, you can't trust that this process will be around in 30 days. Um, and you mm -hmm. also don't want to like take up a thread sleeping. Um, but with durable execution, uh, it, you can trust that the sleep will uh, whenever that sleep ends, it will reliably go to the next line of code, um, even if that's on a, on a different machine in a different process. Um, and you also don't take up resources during that time. So like the, the system is intelligent enough to know that, okay, nothing's happening. Um, I will uh, unload this function just as if it were a crash um, and uh, get it back into the, to the right state uh, after the 30 days. Um, so that's like uh, sleeping. Is it, is it was one of the one of the new things that are opened up. Another thing that's opened up is uh, using storing data in variables instead of the database. Um, so if I can trust that my my local variable will always be there, I can I can I don't need to save it to a, to a database. And you can also um, uh, send send a send a running function uh, instructions like new instructions after like the the initial whatever the arguments were and you can also get data out of it so like instead of fetching it from a, a data store i can i can ask the function hey what's the value of this you have this local variable and and get it returned um yeah i guess so that that's like the coding coding improvements and then in terms of design system design improvements it winds up being like a uh, a large simplifying thing in terms of uh what what how you design things so like event driven architecture uh having having kafka between all your services uh you don't need to do uh you don't need to use job queues uh and, and worker pools you uh don't need to do sagas um which is like the the what, what you were talking about before about having making sure that all of the uh the series of steps uh, reliably complete yeah that's you know it's really fascinating because it, it hadn't fully hit me yet like the example of doing a subscription by just sleeping a function for 30 days and having some sort of guarantee that it executes, right? Because it doesn't feel that unnatural, at least for people that have had to solve this problem, it feels very natural to just sort of have some other 
cron job or scheduled agent that fires on some regular cadence and looks for entries in a database that are beyond a certain age or whatever it is and, and, and performs certain operations on them. But it almost feels interesting and counterintuitive, a little bit scary, the idea of sort of ignoring that and just being able to code as if that failure can't happen. When you started working on this, did that, how long did it take before your brain allowed you to accept that you could code that way? I, I guess uh, I just uh, took it, uh, I guess I, I, I like just believed that it, that it worked. And then later on, I learned like how it worked. Um, yeah. uh, and I guess initially I wasn't coming at it from like tr trying to find software that, that uh, helped me write reliable code. I was coming at it from, um, I, I had been doing like startups and, and, and consulting and, and I wrote a book called, called the GraphQL guide. Um, and af after I finished the book, I <clears throat> was applying for, for um, like big tech uh, jobs and I was doing like leak code. And then I also uh, was learning system design because I was mm -hmm. doing all these system design interviews and I had never done that before. Um, so I was learning a lot about it. And then I found um, Temporal and it uh, was the solution, like a much easier solution to like a wide class of the system design problems. Um, so I was like, wow, this is, this is so much easier. Uh, this is the future. I've, I've got I've to help build it. And now I switched from engineering to, to DevRel to, to help spread the word. Well, this is really interesting. So I guess let's go into a little bit more in depth into what's actually happening there. So I think on some level, we understand the value proposition here. Again, like for people that have never encountered this problem, again, it's something that I feel like if you, if you haven't encountered it yet, that doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. I feel like it's just one of these things that if you've been coding long enough, you'll eventually hit it. I remember doing front-end development um, back in the day. This is, I mean, application, desktop application development back in the day in, in a multi-threaded environment. And I remember having to pour through the code as we made it be from single-threaded to multi-threaded and having to think, what would happen if I got thread interrupted between this line and this line or between this line and this line, right? And you had to do that meticulously through every line of code in the system. Um, and it really is a different situation. And so like, if you've never really encountered this situation where you have this, um, you know, maybe sort of the, the, the value or the comfort that can come from this isn't immediately obvious, but can we talk a little bit about kind of like how this is happening? So a little bit about, you know, how am I defining what's happening? So you sort of said like, I can sleep for 30 days and then and charge somebody like, how does that look and feel differently from maybe how I would just sort of naturally code if I just was going to think that my process could run for 30 days without being interrupted versus, you know, what I might do in kind of this approach to doing things and sort of this durable functions approach? Uh, sure. So I guess uh, before I get to that, you were talking about like um, people and how they realize that they that they have this problem. So one one way in which is like they have something that's they, they need to happen really, really reliably, like um, the uh money transfer or a, a series of steps that you you need to make sure that even if the process dies you're you keep on going so that oftentimes you'd you'd have like a a durable state machine and and a worker pool where you are like advancing from one one state to the next state and then saving it to the to the to the um job queue and then having another worker pick up and go to the next state um and making sure you like retry the, on anything that's uh incomplete um 
So that, that's one way you can get to it. Another way, which is like um, uh, more common, but 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 hard harder to make the leap is like, I am doing event-driven architecture. I, I have uh, services and I can't call them synchronously because that doesn't work well um, and it isn't very reliable. Uh, so I add a message bus. I add I add Kafka, and so I, when I get an order from the from the front end, uh, I put an uh, order created uh, message on the bus with all the info, and then I return to the user saying, "Okay, I, I got the order." Um, and then there are other services that like take that off the bus and and handle different parts of it, like the, uh, the charging and the fulfillment. Um, and uh, event driven architecture is great for like. Uh, decoupling is, is, is the big, um, oh, why, why should you do this? It, because in production, if you have one service go down, it doesn't affect the, the services in front of it. So like if I'm synchronously calling it, then the, then the services calling me um, uh, will like uh, build up threads and, and, and get resource exhausted. This is like the, the circuit breaker pattern. Um, so I don't need to do that in event of an architecture because it, just, it can just go to the queue and then they can just pile up in the queue or the message bus. And then eventually, when the service comes back online, it can it can get the um, uh, request back. Um, so it's decoupled at, at at runtime, but it's not decoupled at design time. If I want to like change the the format of the order created event or the, its name or something, I have to like find all the other teams in my org and or my company and uh, tell them, hey, I need I want to make this change. Uh, update your code so that it supports my new event data. Um, so that then I can up, I can publish my de deploy my change with a new event, um, and that's like so that's highly coupled. I have to like get all my teams to to uh, coordinate uh, in tandem, um, and it, it's not a not a very good developer experience. Sort of like it, when I have when I have lots of events and lots of services, sort of the behavior is sort of like emergent, and like I can't. It's hard to know. Like I need distributed tracing set up um, to, to to know what happens. Uh, when when something happens, <laughs> I need to yeah. Uh, yeah. So that it's hard hard to figure out. Well, we, um, we even had it in a far simpler situation, which was just like we had a list of of processes, things that had to occur, and then we were storing a record to the last processed uh, record. And we had this idea of okay, if you do a batch of them, should you record the new timestamp and then process the records, or process the records? and then write the timestamp with the idea being that if you record the timestamp first, you could miss operations. If after recording the time, new timestamp, you failed to execute all of the operations in that batch. But on the flip side, if you do the operations and then fail to log it, then you have this kind of situation where you might just rerun the same batch over and over and over and over again. And we got ourselves all torn, you know, twisted into knots, just trying to solve this very simple case of two operations and in which order to do them and to make sure that they were correct with one another. Ultimately, we found a way out of it, but like it comes up in even very innocuous situations. Like it doesn't have to be a particularly complicated architecture to arise. Yeah. And if you ever need to retry something, it has to be item potent unless you don't care about it happening multiple times. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the durable execution alternative to event-driven architecture is uh, it's, it's still decoupled at runtime um, because anything any calls to downstream services or third-party apis or databases are automatically uh, retried on failure um, reliably with an exponential backoff um, but they're much better to work with uh, at design time when you're coding because you can read uh, all the steps that happen 
Like instead of just publishing a, 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 a message and not knowing what's going to happen later, you, you write the whole function of what happens. Like say, I, I talk to the, the uh, inventory service and reserve the inventory. Then I talk to the um, payment service or, or the third party Stripe API to charge. And then I talk to the fulfillment service. And I can, I can see that logic uh, in, in a single function, in a single place. And it's easier for, for my future self and my, my, my uh, teammates to, to understand what's happening and, and update it. Um, yeah. So I guess the, this, the, your, your question was, how, how does it do it? Is that right? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, you know, you talked earlier about there being like, oh, you can store data in the variables instead of the database. And to some extent, I think this is by sort of this idea of capturing the function and its sort of context um, as part of this durable function, this durable unit. And I guess the idea is just like to help people understand a little bit more beyond just the conceptual idea of that, like how broad are those tendrils? <laughs> is it is it absolutely everything? Um, you know, how is that? How is that thing being preserved? I guess for the, the execution. Sure, um, I can get into that definitely. So the uh, there's there's two pieces. There's the um, uh, the open source library that you add to your code, and the open source uh, cluster which has Cassandra or or, or SQL and uh, stores the, every step, every meaningful step that your code takes. Uh, so behind the scenes, uh, the library that you're using um, is talking to the service saying, okay, the code just take, took this step, uh, record it. Um, okay, now just take this step. And then, and then um, when uh, this, this like worker process dies um, and, and another one will, will say, hey, is there any work? And they'll be like, yes, this worker has, this other worker just hasn't, hasn't reported in a while. We need to continue running this function. And here are all the steps that have happened previously. Um, so that when this uh, worker uh, replays, it, it, it uh, can, can skip over uh, any of the, the steps that have already happened. So instead of like actually calling the Stripe API, it'll just return the, the result that originally happened immediately instead of like making the network request. Okay, okay, I see. So this is partly the, one of the reasons why one of the requirements for doing this is that you need to have basically pure functions as these, these durable units. Uh, the idea that something needs to be a, the only way that something can pick up from where you left off is if you weren't hiding some of the secret sauce <laughs> inside of the function call itself, that everything was sort of from the initial conditions, the, the things that were passed in and the variables that it's holding. Yeah. So, so we need to, we need to be able to replay the code to, to your, your durable function in order to get to the same place, which means that the code needs to be deterministic. Uh, so one of the, the, the requirements uh, that uh, durable execution puts on you is that you have to separate the um, the durable code from the from the for the deterministic code from the non-deterministic code. And the non-deterministic code is the one that's like talking to the network or database. Um, and the deterministic code uh, can call that code, um, but it can't like do a math at random um, in inside itself and like branch on what it does. It could it could call like a one of the non-deterministic code that could run the uh, math at random and then return it. But then whenever that gets replayed, it'll just have the same um, number return as the, as the original time it executed. All right. <clears throat> We're going to jump right back into more of this conversation about uh, durable functions and temporal. But before we get back to this, we wanted to say thank you to this.labs, who's the sponsor of today's show. 
If you need help with a project that has failed to deliver on time or in need for a team that feels true ownership over your engineering projects, definitely hit up this.labs. They specialize in helping business leaders ensure their strategic digital initiatives stay on track. Trusted by companies like PlayStation, Capital One, Herman Miller, PayPal, and T-Mobile, you can find them at this.co, that's T-H-I-S-D-O-T dot C-O. And of course, thank you for allowing me to have conversations like this. Now, let's return to our show. All right, so Lauren, right before that, we were talking about some of the limitations, or I guess the things that we need to do in order to employ this sort of durable functions pattern, and particularly to, to use them with temporal. We talked about this idea of them being deterministic, um, and I guess you had mentioned item potency. I don't know if that's a formal requirement of, of this. I, I, I assume it must be, but uh, in order for the replay, I guess, to work. Are there other requirements that people need to keep in mind as they're kind of building out um, their systems to use these these workflow patterns? Yeah, so I guess the, so you're, you're separating out like the, the pure logic um, from, the, from the things that might fail, like uh, talking to the network. Um, and, and then you, the things that might fail, um, by, by, by default are retried uh, indefinitely. So um, those we recommend being item potent. Um, you could set it to be like maximum attempts one. And then if it fails, uh, the entire function fails, um, in which case you don't need it to be item potent. Um, <clears throat> um, and then in terms of like what else you need to do, there's um, uh, you, you add a, a, a client library to uh, any service that wants to start one of the durable functions. Um, and that also talks to the, to the open source service. And uh, you need to, to host the open source service somewhere. You could do it yourself. We got a Helm chart or you could, you could uh, pay temporal cloud to do it. Um, and uh, like ma maintain that to, to uh, uh, support whatever throughput you have. Um, it's a, it's a, a write heavy workload because it's writing, uh, writing, uh, persisting each step that meaningful step that your production functions take. Uh, so it can get to, to really high uh, throughput. And uh, so we, uh, we use Cassandra because um, it can scale higher than, than uh, MySQL or Postgres. And um, yeah, I guess uh, it, it, it's designed to support a, a very high uh, throughput or, or, or um, scalability. Interesting. So how, what is the workload to integrate this kind of approach into what people are doing already? I, I always think that that's like one of the tricky parts. I mean, you mentioned you'd written the book on, on GraphQL. I was sort of saying a little bit to you before we started this that like, Sometimes when people are starting with GraphQL, like you explain to them how it works, you explain to them how the queries work and everybody's like really sold, like it makes a ton of sense. And then they're like, but I have this existing multi-year long <laughs> backend that isn't using GraphQL. And like, what are the steps to actually like take advantage of it? So similarly here, if I kind of have a system that's, you know, sort of taping together a bunch of different approaches for dealing with the kind of concurrency issues or other types of reliability issues that systems normally have. And I want to move now maybe more towards this durable functions approach. What, like, what does that look like? Like, what does a typical migration process to this look like? Is this something that you do in stages? Is this something that you can just, you know, just install something and it works? Like, what does that lift look like? And what does that process look like? Yeah, you can, you can definitely, um, incrementally adopt just in just in one place for one use case um, or feature that, that you're building that's new or refactoring something that um, uh, you, you want to improve. I guess a, a common story is that uh, the thing that gets moved to uh, temporal is often 
the like the really complex uh, uh, state machine or some type of complex uh, code that uh, everyone is is afraid to touch because they don't know if they're going to break things. Um, and so oftentimes it's like a big thing that's being migrated, but you can also do it a small thing. Like say, um, uh, you're already using event different architecture. You can take, uh, you can subscribe to, to one event, uh, and start a durable function based on it. And, uh, so then just like for, for one part of your application, instead of writing an event back to the bus, uh, you can like directly call the, um, uh, directly code the, the steps that you want to happen after that um, in, in the durable function. So one of the things that I was thinking about when you were talking is this idea of, okay, let's assume that I have my 30-day agent that's out there running, waiting to, to charge someone for a subscription, and then I change how my subscriptions are executed. This idea of like changing code and adapting it while I have these kind of like workflows or these functions in in progress. Can you explain how to make sense of that in my mind? Like, can you can you update an existing one? Do you replace it on the next execution? Like, what does that look like? And and how do you address this kind of problem? Uh, good, good question. So I guess there are uh, two two options. One is your your function can have RPCs. So if it has like a change of subscription amount or frequency. Um, RPC in the code, then you could just call that um, for any any of the currently running subscriptions that you want to change the price of or, or something. Um, the specifically the the changing code, um, there are, are different ways to do, and one is, uh, uh, I guess you can you can um, deploy a, a new version of the code alongside the old version, and any new functions that start um will go to the new version um and uh, one thing you can do in, in uh in any functions that run a long time is you have to run continuous new which is basically you call yourself and recurse um and mm. any state that you need in the next version you just put in put as arguments and that's to like um uh cut cut short the the event history uh, of all of the things that happened in the past when it gets too long it gets gets a takes takes a long time to replay um, so periodically, if you have a very long running functions, they're, they're going to be continuous new. So whenever it continues a new, it, it will uh, go on to the, the next version, the new version of the code instead of the old. Um, and then uh, another version, another thing you could do is like deploy a new version of the code that all of the existing ones use. And there's like a, um, it's called a patch where you say, uh, if it was V1 version of the code, take this, this code route, or if it was V2, take this other code route. Um, which is sometimes useful. It, it can it can uh, muddle up your code, like the, the, your, make it harder to to, to read. Um, uh, but that's also another option. Interesting. Like, is there a way to see the executions that are currently in progress? Like, does that even make sense as a concept? Like, yeah, I yeah, get this idea. Yeah. So sort of a sort of a, like a, a a really nice byproduct of durable execution is that we have the history of all of your. Uh, uh, production function executions and what happened in them and what state they're in currently. So we have a web UI, you can see them all, um, what their, every function has an ID that the, the, the client gives it at start time. Um, and usually it's like a business meaningful ID, like the, the order ID. Um, so you can 
look up your function by ID or, or just do a search based on other properties. And you can see what the arguments were uh, when it was called, all the steps that it took, um, if it failed, what the failure was, if it's still running, what, what current, what step it's on, if it completed, what the, what the return result was. Um, so you have, you have really good visibility into, into production execution. Oh, and this reminds me, I just saw, I saw um, the Jason Laster replay uh, pod that you did. And uh, Jason, uh, I, I know him. He was, uh, he was in my uh, computer science program at Dartmouth. And I, I love replay the company and, and the, the product. And so it records, um, it's, a, it's a browser that records uh, the, the system calls, like the, the interface between the browser and the, and the, and the OS, so that I can replay it uh, for debugging purposes. And uh, this is, this is the, the, the front end in the browser. Um, what you can do with uh, durable functions is uh, you can replay your production uh, backend function executions. So uh, no, another really nice byproduct of having this event history of everything that happened is I can, I can find like a, a production function execution that happened or, or that failed. And I was like, how, how did this get in this failure state? I can see all the steps, but I still don't really know what happened in, like, in relation to the code. I can download that history um, and, and run it on my machine with, with the code and put breakpoints in. So I can, I can uh, debug uh, things that things that happened in the past in production, um, and I've, I wrote a blog post on it, like comparing it to like existing uh, solutions for time travel debugging in production. Um, like the the most performant one I know of is called Undo Undo.io, and it it still slows down um, execution by like by two to five x. So normally people don't run it um, in production for all their production systems. They'll like have a bug, realize it's hard to reproduce, and then on like a certain subset of production they'll uh, start running it with undo um, recording, um, and then turn it off once they have enough data. Um, but but this is sort of like it's it, it's happening. You can do it for for any of your uh, uh, functions. It's really becoming a, an, a, an amazing time to be a developer with such potent tools. I, I wouldn't have thought that this would be such a powerful sort of uh, logging and uh, I don't know if observability is the right word here, but like this idea of you know, I love that ability to query that, to be able to see that. I mean, I guess, is that a typical use case for this kind of information amongst people that are using this pattern or people that are using temporal is like the ability to see, oh, I've had, say, a thousand errors in this function and 700 of the thousand errors have been on this step or something like that, or become of this state. Like, is is that a is that an intended or a typical way to use that data? Or is this just sort of an interesting side effect of a powerful pattern? Um, I think it's, it's definitely a, a, a normal way to use the data. In terms of like why people started using it, I don't think, uh, I'm not aware of anyone who got to durable execution because they needed this type <laughs> of durability. Like I think sure. uh, you could get a similar um, amount of insight if you like set up distributed tracing really well. Um, it's just really nice that that uh, uh, you have it uh, sort of for free. Yeah, you get a two for one on this deal. Yeah, yeah, basically. Wonderful. Well, sort of tangentially related. I mean, I know that like this durable execution pattern that we've been talking about. I know you recently were giving talks, uh, including at the All Things Open conference, about a bunch of different sort of ways to build distributed systems and other types of uh, complicated patterns. And I guess I was curious on one hand to ask you, A, 
why that's a talk. I guess let's start there. Why was that a talk that you felt like you needed to give? I mean, I I, I was working through it. It's on it's on YouTube. After you get done with this podcast, you can go watch it. It's it's very interesting. But um, you know, why was that a talk that you felt like people needed to hear? Yeah. So the talk title was uh, System Design on Easy Mode. And also, if you want to check out the blog post, it's Time Travel Debugging Production Code. Um, so Systems on, on Easy Mode, it was really like how I came to Temporal in the first place uh, was seeing it as a, as, a, as a much simpler solution to these distributed system patterns. Uh, so I wanted to explain what durable execution was and uh, explain how many patterns uh, were either um, uh, done for you or easy to do or you don't need to do anymore. Uh, so I so I went through a long list of like maybe ten, and explained, explained that. Yeah, I guess on some hand, do do you feel like this is something? I mean, that people should still be studying. You know, I know like a lot of people are kind of coming into development and software development from many different angles, uh, front end and back end. People are being you know coming in as self taught or, um, you know any other types of approaches they may not be coming from formal educational backgrounds like the you know traditional computer science degrees and things like that so i think sometimes you know people don't study these patterns as these patterns do do you think that it's important for for people to be getting this kind of uh knowledge of these patterns do you think that they need to not bother it and just learn about this uh, temporal and this and this durable execution or you know how what are people what should people know about this that they should, um, you know, take with them going forward? So I guess, uh, sure, definitely. I mean, I guess my, uh, I, I think uh, durable execution solves a lot of them. So uh, <laughs> de definitely uh, uh, take that alternative at, at this point. Um, but I guess in terms of where, um, where they're used, I guess is, uh, more often uh like service oriented architecture mm -hmm. and things that uh state machines uh worker pools message buses uh things where you're it, it i guess it depends on what type of development you're doing so if if you're doing front end then you might not need to know them if you are doing like a a monolith that is just handling request responses um, and you don't need that extreme level of reliability of uh, functions guaranteed uh, finishing. Like if you, if you can always reply to the user, sorry, uh, the, this function failed, you need to retry it. Um, then it's also like these patterns are, are less relevant. Um, but yeah, as, as soon as you have like things that take multiple steps that need to reliably happen, or you have services that you need to talk between. Um, I think uh, they're they're definitely important patterns, uh, and uh, I, I hope that that people find uh, durable execution uh, and and how um, uh, easier and simpler it makes things, and how it is able to to speed up and make more reliable uh, your your team's development. Yeah, I mean, I I hope that is the case. You know, I wonder to what extent it's a little bit like the single page application frameworks that we have, right? I mean, like the Reacts and the Angulars and the Views of the world. I mean, the things that they're doing are well known. It's you know they're they're difficult to do and they can be very hard to do correctly, and sometimes very difficult to do with 
maintainable <laughs> code uh, in the absence of, of using them. Um, and so I, I kind of maybe like that idea that, you know, what if you can have a pattern in a tool that can be potent enough that it can help you work through some of the more difficult uh, problems when it comes to this kind of, uh, these types of executions, these types of patterns, these types of problems that can come up naturally and allow you to code in what is a more natural way without having to worry about the nitty gritty of exactly how to solve them. I can see that being incredibly potent and something that certainly people could, you know, if it works out, you know, moving forward the way that people would hope it does, like something that can really help a, a broader class of people be building a lot larger, a lot more um, important, a lot more impactful backend services, uh, maybe with, you know, less experience or, you know, smaller amounts of team. Yes. Yeah, so, someone, a quote I like was someone said, uh, temporal is like coding in college, C code like you're in college. Um, just because, <laughs> like, you, you can sort of simply just write the steps and, and don't need to uh, think about a lot of the, the failure cases. Um, SPAs and, and view frameworks. Um, uh, Swix, Sean Wang, uh, gave a talk um, that Temporal is React for the backend. Uh, so mm. I think sort of similar to how uh, going from jQuery, an imperative changing the DOM to having a, a reactive view layer that's, that's um, reacting to updates and data. Um, I think uh, that, that, that was like a big step change in, in co coding at a higher level of abstraction. Um, and I think uh, durable execution is also uh, a big um, coding at a higher level of abstraction where, where you don't have to worry about um, faults in the, in the network or the, the infrastructure you're running on um, or faults in, in uh, downstream services temporarily being down. Uh, yeah. yeah no, you have to worry super... about less things, write less code. Yeah, it's super exciting, right? I mean, like, I think... And I, I know uh, Sean often was was doing a lot of thinking around like no code and low code environments. And I think sometimes those two ideas get a bad rap in the sense of people think that it means you're using templates and wizards or, you know, pre-built things. But maybe we could conceive of at least the beginnings of low code to be when we offload some of the cognitive weight of all of the complexity of modern systems into patterns or tools that allow us to focus on the business logic in, in, as opposed to like not falling off of this tightrope that we often find ourselves on in system development. Um, you know, I think that's an exciting place, obviously for developers, but certainly maybe for uh, tool makers as well. Yeah, it's definitely uh, less code. Like if, if you're switching from, from doing, um, get, doing things reliably to, uh, sorry, do, implementing things manually to using Darpa execution, it's a, it's a big reduction code, uh, just as I assume it would be if you were switching from, from uh, jQuery to, to React. Wow. Well, that's super interesting. Well, hopefully we've whet people's appetites. Um, for people that are listening to this that are interested in finding out more, or they maybe have been using it and they're curious where they can find other people that are using it, how can people kind of get plugged into uh, Temporal, uh, where can they find you and, and where, you know, where can they find other developers? Sure. There's the temporal.io is the, is the website. I'm at Lauren DSR on Twitter. Uh, we have a YouTube channel, temporal.io, and we also have a Slack, t.mp slash Slack. Uh, you can see what people are using it for and, and ask questions. And we also have like uh, one-on-one courses that are like the, the best way to learn about it and, and how to use it. And that's t.mp slash one-on-one. Well, Wonderful. Well, hopefully people have fun playing with this and you know as you find out more make sure to reach out and yeah, feel free uh, to let lauren know how you get on with it 
feel free to, to ask me any questions you have. I'd be happy to answer it. Great. Well, that's going to be it for us today. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this Modern Web Podcast. Thank you to our guest, Lauren. As always, say the conversation does not stop here. You can find Lauren on Twitter at LaurenDSR. That's L-O-R-E-N-D-S-R. You can find me online at RoboCell. As for the podcast, you can find us online at ModernDOTWeb.com or on Twitter at Modern.Web. Thanks, everybody. Hope to see you here next time. Ciao. This podcast is sponsored by This.Labs, a framework agnostic consultancy that specializes in JavaScript. You can find them at this.co slash labs. That's T-H-I-S D-O-T dot C-O slash labs. Thanks for all of your-